Kathy. I'm so glad to be here and welcome all of you. Rick Holm, our Prairie Doc, is unable to be with us today. So I'm happy to welcome Deb Johnston, a family medicine physician with the Avira Medical Group, Brookings. We should keep track of how many times you've visited us, Deb. I have totally lost track. I've I, been coming for 20 years. That's amazing. It is, That is great. It? Well, we've enjoyed having you on the program. 20 years. I need to know when this program began. <laughs> You'd think I'm the one that would know. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think it was 94, but I'm not certain of that. i got to figure it out. Somewhere around 93? Yeah. Oh, maybe 93. Bob Bob knows. How did you know 93, Because I was working on B93 looking through the glass. It was you and Dr. Holm and Bert Getz. Bert Getz. Yeah, I could? ran into Bert the other day at the grocery store. It's good to see Bert every once in a while. I'm sure longtime listeners recall Bert Getz on the air. He was an interesting fellow, but he certainly had a following. And he and Rick Holm and I, 93, thank you. I knew it was between 92 and 94, so I should have known it was 93. So we've been doing this quite a while. We're happy to have the audience that we have, and I feel like the audience has stayed with us, which is really nice. I think it's all Dr. Holmes doing. He is just a wealth of knowledge. We're he thrilled is. to have him. Uh, I'm thrilled to have worked with him all these years, and I'm really pleased with all his, of his fellow physicians who are so happy to fill in when he's unable. And he has been instrumental in, in being a mentor and a teacher for most of us, too. I know that's how I first came on to the program. I was a resident here, and he drug me here. <laughs> yeah, he I never warned terrified. people what they were doing. <laughs> terrified. You want terrified. me to do what? <laughs> it's interesting, too, because I think sometimes the guests that you have, Joan, are reflective of the people who have the courage to call in. Because I did receive a question earlier. As soon as I started talking that Dr. Deb was going to be in, I received an anonymous email from a lady yes. that I'm sure wanted to ask Dr. Homeless, but was ashamed or embarrassed. And the question was, uh, she's a lady in her early 60s, has gone through menopause, and is wondering about hormone replacement therapy, the benefits, and also the health risks involved. Oh, well, that'd be interesting to cover. Absolutely. So when, and this is a reflection of how medicine changes as new data becomes available, as we start uh, studying things and looking at different pictures and how we um, challenge kind of popular wisdom or popular understanding. When I first started practicing medicine, the popular um, common understanding was that every woman should be on hormone replacement, however uh, indefinitely. It was definitely uh, the thing to do. And then you mean following menopause? Following menopause, right. that's okay. right. Unless she had some reason not to, blood clots or liver disease or breast cancer or something like that. But we really believed that uh, hormone replacement therapy would reduce her risk of heart attacks and, and other bad things and osteoporosis. And then the Women's Health Initiative came out with uh, a very, very large number of women that they had studied for many years. Um, and they actually stopped that study early because they found that death rates were actually higher, disease rates were higher in women who were on estrogen and progesterone. Um, so that is something that uh, evidence-based medicine changed 
the way we were doing things. So uh, after a few years of practice, where before I had been really urging women that they needed to be on hormone replacement therapy, we, we really started changing our practice. Now, this doesn't mean that no one should take hormone replacement therapy. It means that we need to sit down and look at the risks of hormone replacement therapy and look at the benefits of hormone replacement therapy. And for most women, we look at hormone replacement therapy as something that we do for a short period of time to help them with the miserable symptoms of menopause, um, particularly the hot flashes that can be really disabling for women. And we try to look at doing this for a relatively short period of time, a few years. If you still have your uterus, you need both estrogen and progesterone, and that is because estrogen causes the lining of the uterus to grow. And if you have estrogen without the progesterone, the lining of the uterus can transition into something that it can eventually turn into cancer. Now, this is something that we see in women who have their own periods, who have their own estrogen production, whether that's from their ovaries or women that are overweight and have too much estrogen production from their own tissues. So that's something that we see not only in women who are on estrogen, but, but women who aren't on estrogen too. If you don't have a uterus, then you can get by with just plain estrogen. Um, the risks of estrogen and progesterone, it can increase the risk of blood clots. Uh, it can increase the risk of breast cancer. We do worry about that. But there are some benefits, and one of the big ones is that it does indeed reduce the risk of osteoporosis. Can I ask you a question from a guy who doesn't Absolutely. know anything? <laughs> Women take birth control pills when Correct. they're young, and they contain hormones, do they not? Correct. It, does it cause them then the same risks when they're young as it does is it no. the same hormones? It is the same hormones, but the difference is that when women are young, their ovaries are making these hormones too. So when you look at, it seems to have to do with the duration of exposure to these hormones. So when I give a woman a birth control pill, I'm often giving her a lower dose of hormone than what her own ovaries would be making. So the, the risk seems to be with the duration. We know women who um, have their first period earlier have their last period later, those women have a higher risk of breast cancer than women who have a shorter exposure to estrogen. So if I have my first period at 16 instead of at 12, if I have my last period at 48 instead of at 52, my risks for breast cancer are a little lower. If I have my first baby early, if I have more babies, if I breastfeed for longer, those things seem to impact my risk of breast cancer as well. And the thought is that that is because those things kind of put your ovaries to sleep, so to speak. They keep your ovaries from making that estrogen and progesterone, and therefore you have a shorter effective duration of exposure to estrogen on that breast tissue. So we don't really see those risks with birth control pills. We do see the risks of blood clots with birth control pills. We see those risks with pregnancy as well. Pregnancy is a high risk time in a woman's life. Um, but we, we think about that after menopause because those are risks that you don't normally have. Plus, when we think about birth control pills, for most women, being on a birth control pill 
is lower risk than being pregnant. Again, all those risks that we have with birth control pills, we also have with pregnancy. So you have to balance out, if I'm preventing a pregnancy with this birth control pill, I'm, I'm not necessarily uh, comparing apples to apples if I compare that to a woman who can't get pregnant, for example, if she's had a hysterectomy or something like that. So it's, it's an interesting um, question. It's a very good question. And the answer is you shouldn't feel like you have to take hormone replacement therapy, but you shouldn't feel like you can't take hormone replacement therapy for most women if they're really, really miserable with their hot flashes. Now, there's other things we can do to manage hot flashes as well. Um, certain medications, uh, some some blood pressure medications. We don't use those all that often, but they, they are an option. A lot of medicines that we more traditionally use for moods uh, can also help ease hot flashes. Additionally, a lot of women will use just vaginal estrogen. So that's uh, estrogen that's delivered straight to the vagina, either in tablets or a ring or a cream. Uh, and that doesn't get nearly as much into the bloodstream. And so that has a much lower risk associated with it. So women that are having itching or dryness or pain with intercourse or um, sometimes urinary symptoms may use that vaginal estrogen and um, that can be a very reasonable thing to do too. I'm curious too, for hormone replacement therapy, a woman just going through menopause, does it affect their moods? Because I know a lot of women have less problem with hot flashes than they do with mood changes. What do you do with for that? And, and that's an interesting situation, too. I mean, there's a lot of different um, kind of uh, opinions about whether menopause itself affects moods or whether um, what's affecting moods is the idea that I'm having hot flashes and I'm not sleeping well because of my hot flashes. And we all know that poor sleep really impacts moods pretty significantly. Um, and I, I kind of fall into the, the camp of saying, hey, it's both. Because we also know that um, a lot of the receptors in the brain that, that respond to or are dependent on those neurotransmitters that get out of balance when you have depression or anxiety or other kinds of mood problems, they're, they respond to estrogen too. So, um, I think that it's a combination of those factors. And I certainly know women who just plain feel better. Their moods are more stable when they're on estrogen. But again, some of those other mood medicines can be very useful as okay. well. We must have touched on an interesting topic here, Joan, because you I received another, another email. email that, uh, okay. some, and this one, I don't know the sex of, or age of the person. They just said, um, what are the components of menopause? They hear of perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause. What's the difference? Could okay. we take a break? We, you know, we we normally take a break before this, and we will respond to that question. We do appreciate the two questions Absolutely. that have come in, and Deb certainly has a wealth of knowledge on it. We'll be back right after these words. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. We're happy to have you listening today. Dr. Rick Holm is unable to be with us, and in the studio with me today is Dr. Deb Johnston, a family medicine physician with the Avera Medical Group Brookings. Before the break, which I very rudely interrupted Deb's <laughs> train of thought, but I think Deb's with us. We had another question come in, and... Uh, it was about uh, kind of the, the phases of a woman's reproductive life. Okay. And um, the question specifically was about perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause. Um, 
when we think about a woman's reproductive life, there's that early childhood, um, you know, those little girls who don't have any signs of sexual development. And then they start going into adolescence and they start developing those female characteristics. And then they get their first period, uh, which we call menarche. And there's usually a period of time where those periods are irregular, unpredictable, often pretty miserable for those young girls. And then those periods under normal circumstances straighten out and they're pretty regular and predictable. And then usually around 40, as a woman's reproductive capacity is waning, the older you are, the harder it is to get pregnant. A lot of young women also may ovulate irregularly and they may have a little more trouble getting pregnant, but those are very, very young women. Um, But usually the older you are, the harder it is to get pregnant. So it's easier to get pregnant at 20 than it is at 30. It can actually be very difficult to get pregnant at 40 because those eggs just keep aging. Men keep making new sperm throughout their reproductive lives, which really are are very, very long. Men tend to be fertile well For into old long, age. You see these 70 year old exactly. men with a new baby, right? <laughs> they, Much they, younger wife. They, they tend to be fertile almost uh, until the end. Women, however, we're born with all the eggs we're gonna make. So as we get older, those eggs are getting older too and they get less and less lower quality as they get older and our ovaries get older too and they get less responsive to the hormones that our body makes to tell us to make an egg ready and and get everything ready and be ready to to support a fertilized egg and grow a baby so we call perimenopause that time period when a woman's cycles are less predictable um, her hormones are are shifting she's still having periods but those periods may be changing they may be heavier, they may be less predictable, um, they're just not as efficient. Menopause then is that time when our periods stop. Usually those are associated with some hot flashes, just some misery, because that you're not used to not having those hormones around. And then postmenopausal says, yep, we're done. Those ovaries are not making any more eggs. You're just done with that whole process. So that's kind of the difference. <laughs> Women that have had hysterectomies often will stop having periods. Most of the times, those women are not technically postmenopausal because they still have their ovaries, and those ovaries are still making eggs. They're still making hormones. They just don't have that uterus to to grow the lining of the uterus and to bleed. Some women do have their ovaries removed with their hysterectomies, but most women just have the, the uterus The out. uterus removed, okay. So what's the luteinizing hormone in this whole process? The the luteinizing hormone, there's, there's two hormones that are produced by the brain. There's the follicle-stimulating follicle hormone and the luteinizing hormone, and those two hormones kind of coordinate what the ovary is doing. The follicle-stimulating hormone comes first, um, and it tells the ovary, okay, grow me an egg, get that egg ready. Most of those eggs, um, those eggs that are present in that baby girl are kind of in a sedate of suspended animation. And then that follicle-stimulating hormone comes along, and a handful of those eggs 
finished developing, finishing getting ready to be released down into those fallopian tubes so a sperm can come up and join with it and and make a baby. Then that luteinizing hormone comes along halfway through the cycle, gives a big pop of that, and that says to the ovary, okay, release an egg. Usually one of those eggs is released. One of those eggs out of the group that's been developed wins the race and gets released. Sometimes you'll have more than one, and if both of them get developed, that's what causes twins, twins that are not identical twins or triplets that aren't identical triplets or those kinds of things. Are, when girls are born, are they born with their ovaries full of all the eggs that they're ever going to produce or do their bodies manufacture them? Every egg they're going to have for their whole life is there waiting. I didn't know that. That's amazing. I didn't it know is, that either. It? I had no idea. And I'm a woman. I should have known that. What, you didn't go to medical school? uh, No, I did not go to medical school. (laughs) Guys are so dumb about this stuff. It's like we put the blinders on and don't really want to know about it. We know it exists, but it's like, (laughs) you know, so I'm sorry. I I, I plead manliness for this. Well, but, you know, Joan didn't know it either, and she she can't plead manliness. No, no, I really can't. Well, what can you expect from a girl who goes to a roadhouse when she's in college? There you go. (laughs) Well, you'd think that a girl who went to a roadhouse (laughs) would know a little bit about it. Uh, <laughs> I was a very young, naive woman at that all right, house. All right. Just sweet and you lovable. Were, you were very well behaved and I just was. listening to music. It was amazing, though. I really enjoyable. Yeah, these are the things of our youth. We're That's right. well past it. You know, we've done a great job answering. You've done. I haven't done a thing. You've done a great <laughs> job answering the two questions that came in about women's. Um, the first was hormone replacement therapy. And uh, talking about peri, postmenopause, and reproductive, I think we should take our second break. And if you have questions concerning this, certainly call again. Or Bob's been getting his uh, emails coming in very regularly. But we, if not, we'll. Hi, welcome back to Prairie Deck Radio. We're having some strange things. I talked about. <laughs> I was wanted to say, well, I should have known about eggs when I dissected a frog but instead i said when i defrosted that frog i did not defrost a frog. Ed, guess what's for dinner today? Oh. <laughs> i was just thinking i'm not sure i want to eat at your house no, anymore, no, Joan. no 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 <laughs> but you know sophomore biology y'all got to do, dissect a frog did you dissect a frog in biology i can't remember if it oh. was a frog i remember a mouse oh a mouse I'm, that I'm sounds sure worse i'm oh. sure we must have done a frog oh the frog i dissected was. lots of things over well, my lifetime Joan. yes i realized that but i'm thinking <laughs> back to high school bob did you in high school dissected yeah it? we started with earthworms and worked our way up to frogs and then okay. when i was in college it was a uh, nurse shark and then Ooh. a pig and oh my god were you going we, to med school well it was it was with students that were it was pre-med it was like wow. for the dental students and and so anyway yeah um you could always tell the second or third year med students because they worked in the cadaver lab and they had to eat in the cafeteria by themselves because <laughs> they had this winter green smell about no them. one wanted to be near them? Them. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. i remember smell. coming home from my first year of medical school and uh and i was required to disrobe at the front door <laughs> And then carry all my clothing right into the washing machine. Mm-hmm. That bad. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Oh, well, all I, I, this is how I met my husband. 
Really? Not dissecting a frog, but because I just had no interest in science whatsoever, I started college, and they said, you have to take a science class. I said, not me. I did not come to college to fail. <laughs> well, no, no, you need it for a BS. It was, give me a different degree. I do not take so, science. Now we've learned two things about yes. you. You hung out at said, Roadhouses, yes. and you met Ed in the cadaver. No, 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 no. <laughs> and then he finally said, all right. Uh, how about physiography? I said, I don't know what that is. It's physical geography. You got it. And that was my science credit. And guess who was the teaching assistant in physical geography? A young, yes. handsome man oh, he was a by the name of kid. Ed. Yes. And, and is that ethical? Not see? anymore. At that time, <laughs> now he would get arrested. But at that time, he was the TA. He wasn't the professor. He was just the teaching assistant. But geography brought us together and my lack of knowledge of anything scientific. And, and, and you know, the funny thing about that, I remember um, when I went to medical school, I, I have an undergraduate degree in engineering. And my, oh, my goodness. My in, yes, they I do. They really go together. My, <laughs> my engineering physics classes did not have a lab with them. They, they had, in my, uh, at the University of Iowa, they had three different physics, undergraduate physics introductory levels. They called it physics for poets, physics for doctors, and physics for physicists. Seriously. Seriously. Unbelievable. Now, that's what the students called it. There yes. were other names oh, yeah. for the but real that classes. that was about it. Right. But physics for physicists is what the engineers took, and that did not have a lab with it. Physics for doctors did Had have a lab. lab with it. Well, I took physics for physicists, and when I actually went through the medical school application process, I was required to take the physics lab, even though I had many engineering labs after that. They, they didn't, didn't count. count that. So I had to go back and take physics for doctors lab. And when I did that, the individual who was my TA was actually somebody that I had known through other avenues. And we had, my husband and I had invited him to dinner one night, and his professor was very distressed by this, very worried that this was impropriety. Oh, <laughs> <So> it <laughs> would be so wrong to have him to dinner. A uh, home-cooked yes. meal would translate <laughs> into an A, right? I, you, I think that that's what he was worried, or yeah. he was worried we were building a relationship. I think we must have touched on a nerve for now received an email from a gentleman <laughs> that said, in a spirit of equality, would you ask Dr. Johnson if men go through male menopause? All right, good question. That is a good question. <laughs> so men do have declining hormone levels as they age. Women have a very abrupt transition relatively compared to men. Um, we have basically that 10-year period where uh, our hormone levels are not quite um, stable and we tend to have a lot of those symptoms and our periods get all messed up. Uh, and then that final period and then after that nothing should happen and if you do have bleeding after that it it needs to be checked out because it's not supposed to happen men have kind of less responsive testicles over time their testosterone levels kind of drift down so a 20 year old man is going to have a higher testosterone level than a 50 year old man just under the normal course of events but men do not have the same kind of abrupt fall or abrupt loss of their hormone levels as women do so you know the idea of of male menopause is kind of a, a popular idea and it has a lot of traction kind of um, 
uh, among uh, among the lay public but for most men it's not the way it works, the same way it works for women. Um, now, there are situations where men will have kind of testicular failure, and uh, for whatever reason, usually because the testicle just stops making testosterone and stops responding and just kind of fails the way the ovary fails, that can happen. Um, but most of the time, it's just kind of this gradual decline in function. Uh, and you, again, have a fair number of men well into their 70s and beyond who still have testosterone. Well, what would you call, if men, if there isn't a male menopause, why do so many men as they get older have erectile dysfunction? Something Um, else Bob doesn't want to talk about, right, Bob? (laughs) No, 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 no. Erectile dysfunction is actually a a multifactorial process, and um, some of it, there is a a role for that declining uh, testosterone, um, but a lot of times it has to do with other diseases. It has to do with um, diabetes is a big one. Um, a vascular disease is a big one. It's poor perfusion. You know, if you need blood flow and if you're having anything that diminishes blood flow, that causes big problems. Um, medications can play a big role. And there's also a very large um, mental health component to that, too. So, uh it's it's a very complicated issue for men. So and even if they're having erectile dysfunction, they still have that testosterone flowing. They may, they right? may very well still have that testosterone ah, okay. flowing. Well, yeah. you see no, the ads on television; those pills are just making a lot of those pharmaceuticals quite wealthy, right? They certainly are. Yeah. So there must be a need for it. Yes. Okay. Well, we pretty well covered you guys and you gals. Should we get to? We did have Women another. Women are far more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> We always have been more complicated, but we're happy to be so. Keep the men guessing, right? That's right. Okay. Uh, We did have a call come in on a totally unrelated subject. Why don't we get to that? And it has to do with sleep apnea. This woman called in and said her husband's doctor ordered a sleep test for him. Could you talk about it, and what is sleep apnea? That is a great question, and I think sleep apnea is something that is kind of under-recognized, under-appreciated. Um, basically, what happens in sleep apnea is that the, the soft tissues of the throat, the tongue, the roof of the mouth, um, those swallowing muscles, they kind of collapse. They relax, and they collapse together during sleep, and then you basically obstruct your airway so you can't get a good breath in during sleep so these people will snore and they also will have to wake up in order to open that airway back up again so they're not getting a good night's sleep all night long too because their brain has to wake them up over and over and over and over again but they don't realize this they is don't happening. necessarily realize that because they're not coming all the way awake they're just getting into much lighter levels of sleep now a lot of times that can be positional it tends to be a whole lot worse on the back than it is on the side or the stomach uh, and there are other types of sleep apnea where the brain just doesn't send the message to breathe, but far and away the most common type is what we call obstructive sleep apnea, where those those throat and mouth muscles fall in and collapse that airway. So that's a situation where you'll say the husband will, uh, husband or wife will snore all night long. You'll have to elbow them to get get them to take that breath. They'll kind of. <coughs> 
do that sort of a thing all night long. So we send them to a sleep lab where they sleep under observation. They have a lot of different wires lined up. And the treatment for this, the most common, most useful, most studied treatment, there are other treatments, but what we usually do is wear a little mask over the nose and mouth that forces a little bit of air, different pressures depending on what you need with a sleep study, into the airways at night and keeps them open and lets you get a good night's sleep. And it's a world of difference. Why bother? What's the important? Uh, Dropping oxygen levels, not sleeping all night long can be can cause a lot of health problems. First off, the most obvious, if you're sleep deprived, increased risk of accidents. You can also have, it's hard on your heart. Um, it, mood problems, you know, we talked about sleep disruption and mood problems when we were talking about menopause. It's the same kind of thing for people who have sleep apnea and aren't sleeping because of that. So okay. there's a variety of health problems that come along with. So it's well worth it's taking well this worth. health study it's or well the sleep study and this. finding out. Yep. And, 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 so and treating it. And treating it too. Well, yep. Deb, this has been phenomenal. We never it's even got fun. our third break in, but we don't care. We're running out of time. We do hope most of you, if you're listening to n- today, will watch tomorrow night's uh, Prairie Doc, I'm sorry, on call with the Prairie Doc, South Dakota Public Television tomorrow night. Dr. Holm will be back. He's on the program tomorrow night. It should be fascinating. His best friend, or one of his best friends, James Engelbrecht, will be the uh, host, and he will be interviewing Dr. Holm on aging and facing death, one physician's experience. I am looking forward to hearing that, and I think most of the people who love Dr. Holm will want to hear his comments on what he's been going through for the past year. With that note, um, we're going to have to say goodbye. We hope you can hear, you will hear more from Dr. Holm tomorrow night, but also online at prairiedoc.org. And my thanks to Deb Johnson for joining me today. That's all for this week. That's been great being here. Thanks, everybody.